Welcome to Buddies, Books, and Blockbusters, the podcast where a buddy and I compare a famous book to its blockbuster. Here is the answer to last week's trivia question, which was, what are the top 10 fouls in Quidditch? All right. Most of them are for all players, but some are specifically for like chasers or keeper or anything like that. So blagging, which is for all players, and that is seizing the opponent's broom to slow them down. That's a big no no. Blatching, which is also all players, flying with the intent to collide, which happens a lot in the first movie in the Quidditch match versus Slytherin. Yeah. I'm just I'm just gonna put that out there. Okay, okay. <laughs> Blurting, which is something I do all the time, which is all players, um, locking broom handles to steer an opponent off course. Bumping? <laughs> it's spelled with a PH, um, so I'm assuming it's an F sound. And it's only beaters. And it's hitting a bludger to the crowd, which makes sense. Don't don't hit the people that are cheering for you. That's a dick move. Cobbing, which is all players, an excessive use of elbows towards a player. I'm just imagining like people elbowing each other. Like I feel like that happens in the first movie as well, but Yeah. We're just okay. Let's see. Number that was five so number six is flacking and that's only the keeper and it's sticking any anatomy in a hoop to punch the quaffle out so unlike a goal they can't put like an a hand or something in once it's already past the hoop mm-hmm. which makes like, sense make it back out yeah. right like stop that but i guess <laughs> they could do it from the back because i feel like oliver wood has done that in a I don't know. Anyways, mm-hmm. there is haversacking, which reminds me of... Haggy-sacking? <sighs> Thank you. <laughs> I was like, what is the word? And it's only for chase. This is only for chasers. Your hand cannot... So I guess this kind of goes with, with flacking. But your hand is still on the quaffle as it goes through the goal hoop. So it has to leave your hand before it goes through. So no piece of your anatomy can go through the hoop of anyone's anatomy. Quaffle pocking, which... <laughs> These are getting more and more fun to say, which is only for chasers, and that's tampering with the quaffle. So um, any touching or anything of that that could inhibit magically the quaffle. Like the beater situation? Dobby? Yes. Dobby, stop that. Snitch nip, which I think is adorable, (laughs) and I feel like they should make like a little catnip um, snitch for cats. That'd be cute. This is all except the seeker, any player except for the seeker touching or catching the golden snitch, which makes sense. And then stooging, last but not least, stooging, which is the chasers, more than one chaser entering the scoring area at a time. So, yeah. So that was fun. (laughs) Anyways. A special thank you to everyone who participated. I appreciated all of your answers, but a special shout out goes to John. John went ahead and answered the question very impressively. So yeah, congratulations and thank you everyone for participating. This week, my friend Crystal and I are going to be going over the Goblet of Fire. We had a lot of fun creating this episode and I hope you guys enjoy it too. Harry Potter's name is mysteriously entered into the Goblet of Fire for the extremely dangerous Triwizard Tournament. He is drawn with three other champions from competing schools, Cedric Diggory of Hogwarts, Victor Crumb of Durmstrang Institute, and Fleur Delacour of the Beaubatons Academy of Magic. They must complete three tasks to be declared the winner of the coveted Triwizard Cup. Each champion must steal a dragon egg from a nesting dragon, and with his broom, Harry is able to take it. Inside the egg is an awful scream, which is consequently a siren song for the second task in which he must retrieve something of value from the lake. These things turn out to be people. Cho Chang, Cedric's girlfriend, Gabrielle, Fleur's little sister, Hermione, Crumb's Yule Baldy, and Ron, Harry's best friend. Harry tries to save everyone, and in the end is awarded extra points when he saves Ron and Gabrielle, because Fleur couldn't. In the third task, the four champions must go through a tricky maze to find the Triwizard Cup. In the end, Cedric and Harry decide to tie and grab the cup together, only to be transported to a graveyard with Peter Pettigrew and Voldemort. A small object orders Wormtail to kill Cedric and uses Harry's blood to bring Voldemort back to a corporeal being. Harry and Voldemort's wand touch and create Priory Incantatum, where Harry sees the recently killed Cedric and his parents, who hold Voldemort off 
long enough for Harry to get back to the Triwizard Cup with Cedric's body and tells everyone Voldemort is back and he killed Cedric. Hello buddies! Welcome to Buddies, Books, and Blockbusters. I am your host, Jessica, and today I have with me the wonderful Crystal. She's going to help me go over all of Goblet of Fire and... Hi! (laughs) (laughs) Woo! Hello! All right, so to get started, I want us to get to know our buddy, of course, so you kind of know who you're listening to and whatnot. So, Crystal, what is your Hogwarts house? Um, I am very much a Hufflepuff. I'm kind of a Hufflepuff with a harsh persona, but I am very much a Hufflepuff. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I think you're the first Hufflepuff that we've I've had on the podcast. So oh, fun. I know, yeah. So Yay. yes. So um what what's like one of your favorite qualities of being a Hufflepuff? Um, I feel like Hufflepuffs generally uh value kindness as well as justice and so i i i feel very strongly that hufflepuffs are the kinds of people who are fighting for um social justice and who are unapologetic in sticking up for what's right without being belligerent or or just rash or you know like i feel like there's a there's a calmness that happens with me and my fellow siblings who are also Hufflepuffs who feel very similarly about a lot of things. There are seven kids in my family, and the oldest is a Gryffindor, the second is a Ravenclaw, the youngest is a Gryffindor. So four out of seven are Hufflepuffs. <laughs> Whoa, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I just found out that my sister's a Slytherin, and I was like, oh, that that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> That's I'm the a, one house we don't have in my family. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm a Ravenclaw, so it's funny because my sister's like, oh, like, she she just is, like, getting into it right now. And so she's just like, oh, I was reading about that. And she's like, yeah, you're definitely a Ravenclaw. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So how did you get into Potter, Harry Potter, the world? Yeah, so I... I grew up with the books. So the, the first book came out in the U.S. when I was 10, and the last book came out when I was 18. However, um, I was kind of a mean older sister. My my little brother loved it so much that I had to hate it. Uh, and it wasn't <laughs> until I think it was the first movie came out, um, and I I was also an avid reader. So I didn't want to watch the movie without first reading the books, but I didn't want to read the books but I finally like had an argument with my mom where my mom was like, we're watching this movie at home, whether you like it or not. So you can read the books or not. So <laughs> finally I did. And then of course I love them. So yeah, they're, they're incredible. I mean, they're just, I don't know. I feel like, especially our generation, it's, the, uh, it's our, it's yeah. our series. It's our, it's like what defines us. So which character, if any, do you identify with? I mean, it's the obvious choice, but I do identify the most with Hermione. Her, like, I was always, I am still a perfectionist. I'm very much someone who pays a lot of attention to detail and wants to get things right. And I was also very much a nerd. And I'm, even with, like, in the fourth book, when she starts to be able to come into her own and see that she is also a beautiful person, like, I didn't get that until much later in life. So I, I just relate a lot to her, like, bookish, know-it-all type personality and then coming into her own later in life, so. I definitely see that. Those of you listening, Crystal and I met at work. We were training for the same role, and it was Harry Potter related, so it was really exciting <laughs> to find Crystal as someone, my fellow coworker, who was just someone that I felt like I could really vibe with, so I love that, because I feel the same way. I think Hermione is someone that I really relate to as well. All right. What's your favorite obscure fan theory about the series? The idea that the Dursleys are so mean because Harry is a Horcrux. Yes. Sorry. Like, really no, you're good. That's that. I mean, I, I do think based on their descriptions that we get pre Harry living with them, uh, it's obvious that they're not the best people. But it is, I, I think there is potential for they were worse people because mm-hmm. he was a Horcrux and it had a negative effect on them. Yeah. There is one that I really like the idea that Crookshanks is um, Lily's cat oh. because Crookshanks is half Neasel. Is that how you say that? I don't yes. Know. So yes. I hate that thing where like you read the books and so you know what the word is visually, but you don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah. So yeah. Crookshanks would 
technically have a longer lifespan. So the idea that he could have been Lily's cat, like that would make him at least 13 years old um, by the time we meet him. But that makes sense in the lore of what an evil's life expectancy is. So yeah. I like that one. I've never heard that one before. That's so cool. Yeah, it's because in in, uh, one of the later books, when there's like a letter that Lily writes, she says something about the cat um, and how the cat has really taken to Harry or something like that. So then in with Crookshanks, Crookshanks, like they say that Crookshanks has been at that shop for a long time. um, And then Hermione finally adopts him. Like Crookshanks gets along really well with Sirius, inherently doesn't trust uh, Wormtail, who's the scabbers who turns out to be Wormtail and Peter Pettigrew like so it could make sense I kind of like it that's so oh I love that oh my gosh (laughs) (laughs) I am all for this to be canon oh I love that cool and then last pod fan question my friend Melaine asks who is your favorite house elf uh Winky yeah I love Winky too everybody we, we know Dobby really well and everybody loves Dobby but I love Winky I love her getting drunk on butterbeer and trying to figure out her life and not not being endlessly positive like Dobby is and I feel I like, like she's the embodiment of your 20s like after yes. <laughs> after she's been fired by Marty Crouch she's just like what am I doing with my life what, what is this what is life I don't know <laughs> incredible <laughs> All right, so some quick fun facts about the book. Um, it was released on July 8th and of 2000. And uh, Crystal, I don't know if you know this. I actually just found this out the other day when I was doing some research on this. Natalie McDonald was this little girl who was a leukemia patient in Canada, and she was a huge fan of the series. So her and her mom formulated a letter to J.K. Rowling. Unfortunately, it got lost or something like that, and J.K. Rowling wrote a response basically um, detailing the plot of each main character. But unfortunately, it got to the family too late and Natalie McDonald had passed. So in an effort to honor her and her love for the books, J.K. Rowling actually wrote Natalie McDonald in as a Gryffindor student in Goblet of Fire. So yeah, super neat. It's on page If anyone is following along in the books, it is on page 180 in the American edition and 152 in the British edition. So if anyone wants to read about her applauding nearly headless Nick, it's it's a sweet little shout out. Yeah, it's like one of the good things that J.K. Rowling did. Right, back when uh, we thought of her as a good person. It's okay, I've already delved in. People are complex and (laughs) people are capable of a lot of good and a lot of bad and that is good to know that she's one of that's one of the good things she's done that's one, it, well put so i also found some fun facts about the film it was released five years after the book came or yeah the book came out so on november 18th of 2005 all of the underwater scenes were shot in a blue screen tank and dan actually dan radcliffe spent 41 hours and 38 minutes underwater filming (laughs) i know know. daniel radcliffe for those of you that don't know although i feel like you all do plays harry potter the studio warner brothers originally was going to adapt the book into two films which it would have been like a big deal and ordeal but they would have included so many things because i feel like it doesn't make sense if you haven't read the books because i mean even splitting the last film, the last book into two films started that trend that then Twilight did that and Hunger Games did that. And like, right. I get it because there is so much to wrap up. But if the fourth one had been two movies, the fifth one would have mm-hmm. probably been two. Like, that's a lot. Yeah, it would have been a lot. It would have been we would have probably had instead of eight Harry Potter movies, like 16. <laughs> yeah, it would be pretty crazy. So Mike Newell, the director, he can he decided not to and he, he figured he could cut enough subplots, which I'm very passionate about. We'll get to that later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but what, one I feel pretty strongly about. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, the director of book three of Prisoner of Azkaban, um, Alfonso Cuaron, actually convinced him, which kind of makes me even more angry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I was like, oh, you shouldn't have your hand in any of this, but it's fine. I'm sure you covered it, covered this on your mm-hmm. previous podcast on book three, but do you like the movie of book three okay so the way I feel about it is I do like book three I liked the way the movie portrayed book three however I'm very very angry that they left out pretty much the whole Marauders backstory 
I'm very upset that a lot of things aren't explained. Quidditch isn't a thing at all. I feel like they decided to include a bunch of teen angst in that wasn't written in the book mm-hmm. and made it more like a teen film. Yeah. Than like following the book truly, and that's super interesting to me. Uh, sorry to sidetrack, no. but that like I feel like growing up, that was the worst movie. Nobody liked that one. And then as an adult, I have discovered that that's a lot of people's favorite movie, and I am just endlessly confused. Like, I don't know when that popular opinion changed to unpopular <laughs> opinion or whatever. I, don't I think I think because it's my favorite book, I would just go it ahead is, and say yeah. it's my favorite movie, just because I love the time turner. I love the sequencing of everything. I just, but I remember not liking it because of its relationship to the book. Fair. Yeah. Lupin is my favorite character, so I have feelings about that as well. But we're talking about book four. <laughs> I know. I love Lupin as well. Oh, it's such a it's such a shame that he's not in this. Um, but actually, um, I mentioned it earlier. J.K. Rowling's favorite character to write was Lupin. So I know because he's just great, and he should just be in more of the series. <laughs> it was super weird to be a thirteen year old and have a crush on a teacher, and now as an adult, it's totally fine because he is thirty three <laughs> when we meet him, and I am thirty one. So <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> we are here for it. So Stanislav, oh, I'm gonna destroy this. Ianevsky. Uh, I think so, yeah. Okay, cool. He plays Victor Crumb, for those of you that don't know, has only two lines in the entire film. (laughs) I I think he has more. (laughs) I feel like he has more, but it totals to 20 words. That was my understanding when I was reading this fun fact. One full-scale dragon was actually built for the film. And yeah, and um, it could actually blow real fire. So um, let's just hope its head doesn't catch on fire. Uh, oops. <laughs> what? I don't know what you're referring to. Neither do I. And it was actually partially created from the basilisk. So oh, that's kind of okay. cool. Yeah, recycling. Yeah, that's good. We, we, we stand that. We do. We stand. <laughs> um, all the kids in the, sh- in the movie that aren't the main characters spent three weeks learning how to dance for the Yule Ball. But since Dan is in every scene in the movie, he didn't get nearly enough time. So that's why he's only filmed from the waist up. Because <laughs> apparently his feet were just fumbling all over and he was McGonagall's famous bumbling, babbling band of baboon. <laughs> Amazing. The quick little, there's a quick little moment. So the house elves are pretty much absent in the movie, unfortunately. Okay. That's something we'll get into later. But after the campsite scene, Ginny shouts, look, and sorry, two house elves are seen riding llamas. <laughs> I was like, I have to go back and double check. This. But why? <laughs> what are llamas doing in Scotland? Yeah. Yeah, Scotland. But like, why would house elves be riding llamas? Like, what? I don't, I don't, why? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I got this from a place called kickassbags.com, so, <laughs> I mean, honestly, if this is credible, thank you. Uh, if not, I'm... <laughs> it's a delightful thought, regardless of if it's true or not. <laughs> truly, truly, truly. So, now we move on to the part of the podcast about our favorite casting in the film, There were a couple new characters, a lot of new characters introduced in this book. Do you have anyone that you care to share about, want to talk about more? Not not terribly, but at uh, at the same time. Um, So I've been listening to James and Oliver Phelps' podcast, uh, Normal Not Normal, and they did an episode just last week or the week before with Katie Leung, uh, who plays Cho Chang. Right. And they were asking her, what was it like coming on you know, we all knew each other and you were the new girl. And she said, she's like, honestly, there were actually quite a few new people uh, that year. So it wasn't as bad. It was still, I'm the new kid in school. She said it felt like going to a new school and everybody staring at you, especially because she felt so much pressure because she, she had never acted before. She had only heard of the casting from um, the Chinese channel in Britain. And her dad had been like, you're 16 and Asian and Scottish. Do you want to go to this audition? And she initially said no. But they were like, well, it could be a fun weekend in London. And so they went and she got cast and she 
she's clearly like an introverted person and hearing her talk about the the level of not vitriol that got thrown her way but it was definitely very critiquing of her because she was 16 she's like I already didn't feel great about my looks but I was cast as this love interest for the main character and everybody wanted to be me therefore everybody hated me so it was just really interesting hearing her talk about it that's fascinating I yeah actually had no idea about this podcast and now I feel like I like I have to know more about this you guys everyone at work gets me into all these podcasts I love it they're great we love them yes oh my gosh okay well we'll get back to that later so I was looking through and Cedric Diggory of course Robert Pattinson well we'll talk about your Cedric Diggory (laughs) moment later that was like when I read that I was like I'm emotional Cedric Diggory I love I really liked that it was Robert Pattinson I think that I think it was a breakout role for him I might yeah yeah he did that before Twilight So nobody knew who he was. That's right. And I mean, I thought he fit exactly what I had read in the books perfectly. I was like, oh, yeah, strapping, beautiful. Yeah, he was definitely like the older kid um, compared to Harry. Like Mm -hmm. sometimes I would have a hard time watching the movies and remembering who was meant to be older. But if you remember being 14, somebody who's 17 was a lot older than you. you And now as we're adults, those ages were so... Age differences don't make as much of a difference. But yeah, Cedric being this like older, attractive, good person who Harry helps him with the first task, so then he helps him with the second task. Like he just, I was in love with Cedric. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, I... <laughs> and it was the first time that we got to meet an actual Hufflepuff and get to know them. Like we didn't get to know many of the Hufflepuffs before that. Book. No, that's true. Cause the ones before were just. They were there to, like, help move forward plot, if anything. Mm-hmm. They weren't really a character in themselves that made a difference. And I also thought it was really cool that it was a Hufflepuff that was chosen for the Triwizard Tournament. Right. Because everyone, for lack of a better word, poops on Hufflepuff in that respect, I think. Um, yeah. I personally don't because I've, I've always loved Hufflepuff and I actually for a while thought I was a Hufflepuff when I was younger. But yeah. that made me so happy when I was younger. I was like, oh my gosh, like this house that we never hear about because Ravenclaw are the smart people and Gryffindor are the brave people and Slytherins are the bad guys, but also they're cunning ambitious and really ambitious. And, exactly. Yeah. Right. I mean, growing up, I definitely thought Slytherins were the bad guys, <laughs> but you know, as as you she grow up, you do realize that way. Yeah, a little bit. And then Barty Crouch Jr. was a huge one for me. I love David Tennant, and I yes. think at the time he had just been cast as the Tenth Doctor. Had Ooh, he? okay. Yeah, I think. I think if I remember correctly, I remember being at my British friend's house and her family being so excited. And I was like, the bad guy from Harry Potter is going to be the doctor? I had no idea who the doctor was. (laughs) And um, apparently the tongue thing, it's not in the book, but he brought that in. And I think that that was actually a really cool kind of uh, character. Yeah, it was a good character tick to have for him to help remind us that like he's young and attractive and also not I don't want to say not all there I feel like that's insulting in a way but like yes yes definitely manic I love that I love that explanation of it I was gonna say um like doesn't have the best intentions but I think manic is a lot it's a much better term for that um (laughs) (laughs) moody I think was an exceptional actor I mean Mm -hmm. to be playing an actor that to be playing someone as someone else the whole entire time I like it's funny I started reading the fifth book for the next recording and just like c- kind of thinking in my brain I'm like oh my god this actor has like literally spent this whole time studying David Tennant to be more like him and you know obviously like <laughs> he's playing another actor who's trying to play himself and it's just as as actors I mean, ourselves it's fascinating in the later films getting to play himself I wonder if that was interesting to go from I was never actually playing this character. I was playing a different person as this character. And now I am actually playing this character. I wonder what that must have been like. Yeah. If that was difficult at all. If that was stressful or if that was just, oh, I'm an actor. It's fine. Right. Exactly. And those are things that, you know, if I could ask him, that'd be cool. I thought it was weird that there was no Ludo Bagman. Um, However, Mm -hmm. I think think that they were able to kind of play Barty Crouch Sr. a bit more as both, despite Ludo's subplot and I understand you have to get rid of some subplots with a book as long as Goblet of Fire when you're right. turning it into a 
film, but... And then I just have a couple more. We, we discussed Cho and Rita Skeeter. They picked an actress who truly <laughs> embodied my hatred for Rita Skeeter in the books. I mean, <laughs> like, I understand she's a journalist. She has to do her job and whatnot, but oh, the ruthlessness. Yeah. Oh, I was just gonna say, she's perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's got that, like, beauty factor going for her that's like, oh, I can get whatever I want from men if I want to, and all the women want to be like me, but then also, I'm just gonna use my quick quotes quill and insert all of my thoughts and opinions yes, in here. Yes, exactly. Uh, everything you want in a journalist, but also don't want in a journalist at the same time. Right. <laughs> because she's writing, even if she doesn't she she's putting her own thoughts and feelings into what she's writing and she's sensationalizing on purpose and like she's everything that we don't want journalists to be exactly yeah it's fascinating i mean you know you don't think about it until it's portrayed in front of you like that the differences between the book and the blockbuster so um so there are a few tiny things that honestly i see why they left it out and whatnot. Um, early references to Wormtail's right hand, which I think is super interesting. He's his he's Voldemort's right hand man. Wormtail, if the for those of you listening that do not remember, is Peter Pettigrew who betrayed James and Lily and betrayed their location to Voldemort. Of course, I just I had to include this because I love birds. Um, Sirius's tropical birds when he's like sending the letters at the very beginning of the book when he's sending letters to Harry. He has all these like tropical birds coming in. Right. Yeah. And they're like I forgot about that. <laughs> I loved it. I just had to insert it because I was like, I love birds. But he has all these tropical birds and uh Harry has this moment where he's like, I hope that he's in a warm, happy place. Like he must be. So it's right. a cute little moment. Like how far away is he if they're tropical birds? <laughs> right. They're not Is in- there anywhere in Europe that's tropical? Like how far <laughs> Where did you go, in Spain? He's, he's like, he's oh, cool. Yeah, he's very far. <laughs> of course, <laughs> I loved this line. Dudley is the size of a small whale. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Dudley. The fact that this is such a small little detail, but the fact that Crouch Sr. just calls Percy Weatherby the whole time. <laughs> Weatherby. <laughs> That's just great. The explanation of the Ronsky faint, which is a Quidditch play that you can do mm-hmm. kind of shows the huge Quidditch fans that Ron and Harry are that they yeah. like know all these different plays and of course their fascination with Crumb. The Roberts family is left out. So at the Quidditch World Cup, there's a Muggle family that um helps the wizards kind of get everything organized because it's such a big event, but their minds are constantly being obliviated and so right in the movie they're kind of like throwing off these bombs everywhere whereas in the book the death eaters are basically making this family float in the middle and kind of torturing them right which kind of i think gives the death eaters a more ominous yeah a much darker image because they aren't just servants of voldemort they are also willing to torture muggles yeah yeah just not good people right the making up of the divination homework, Professor Trelawney is largely absent in the film. Yeah. <laughs> the making up of divination homework I thought was really funny and them finding different ways to die each month. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Be creative um, with it. Exactly, yeah. Another thing that I noticed, and this is a little bit bigger, so we don't really talk about Voldemort's other victims necessarily in the movies. Obviously, we do have to focus on Harry, Harry Potter, why he's famous and whatnot. But the Frank Bryce backstory, the fact that he was the caretaker, the fact that the Riddles knew him, I think kind of gives Voldemort this more evil, I mean, he's already a terrible villain, so it kind of adds to that. Frank Bryce wasn't just a random caretaker he actually knew him and still was murdered by him yeah which you know shows that he's ruthless bertha jorkins does not come up at all in the film i mean i think she's like maybe mentioned in passing at one point or another but bertha jorkins is another victim for those that have not read the book bertha jorkins was a ministry representative and she went missing They talk about it a lot in the book. She comes up all the time. Turns out, I think it was Barty Crouch Jr. found her. No, no, no. It was Wormtail that found her. Wormtail and Voldemort basically 
performed a bunch of awful memory charms on her to break her memory to find out where Barty Crouch was hiding. Spoiler alert, Barty Crouch Jr. And ultimately where Moody was and all the Triwizard Tournament information. Mm-hmm. she's the one that they say went missing in like albania or something right yeah which is where yeah. voldemort was supposed to be at large at the time too yeah a serious also discusses her in the fire and how she's a total gossip so yeah she's not like the perfect human she's not like an angel perfect wizard or anything like that she she's a gossip and he's not surprised that they would choose her bertha mentions the triwizard tournament to voldemort who tortures it out of her and really destroys the charm that barty crouch senior put on her when he when they had all discussed the triwizard tournament and she comes up in the priori incantatum which we'll talk about later as well yeah i don't think she comes up in the movie though because she's not mentioned right and dumbledore explains priori incantatum to him because those are Voldemort's previous wand movements and the reason it happens is because their wands are made with the same phoenix feather from Fox which we never learn about in the movie so yeah oh I didn't realize that the movie didn't say that no you know what maybe maybe it does I don't I don't think it does though because they I they just say that it's from a phoenix feather but they do mention that Fox is one of the few phoenixes left so yeah maybe maybe that's it I don't know it was a when I was reading it I was like oh that's a surprise Oh, I loved, okay, so I loved this scene. In the book, the Weasleys meet the Dursleys. So what happens, uh, for those of you who are listening who have not read the book, so the Weasleys go to pick up Harry from the Dursleys when he's having this bad dream. And Arthur shows up with Fred, George, and Ron, I believe, and they are there to pick him up to help him they're like he's gonna stay with us because we're all gonna go to the quidditch world cup he's gonna he can stay with us we'll go pick him up they go with flu powder and everything and um i totally forgot about this coming back to me yeah but like yeah because in the movie we just show up with the port key right yeah it he just wakes up he has the bad dream about voldemort and wormtail and in the movie, Barty Crouch Jr. in his sleep at the Weasleys. So we don't even have a Dursley oh, scene okay. mm-hmm. in the movie. Huh. Yeah, and so it's really cute because Arthur stands up for Harry. You can tell that he's such an important person for him. And so he tells the Dursleys, he's like, are you not going to b- say goodbye to your nephew? And Harry's like, don't worry about it. Like, they never would. And he's like, you're not going to see him for this many months. He's going back to school. You're not going to say goodbye. And like, it's, it's just kind of cool to see that. Just the whole family, the interactions with the Weasleys, I mean, we see it a little bit at the Quidditch World Cup, but you you kind of see Bill and Charlie hinting at the Triwizard Tournament, which I thought was kind of a fun scene that could have been interpreted into the movie as well, and the inclusion. Yeah, because we don't get to meet them very much at all, which again, no. like, I get for sake of right. movie characters are so many, like, but yeah, we don't get to meet Bill and Charlie and have real conversations with them very much at all until much yeah. later. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I don't even know if we actually meet Charlie in the books. We might now in that the I'm th- or in the movies. Excuse me. Yeah. Aww. I know because I know we meet <laughs> Bill because spoiler alert, he ends up with Fleur. But like, I don't know. I was thinking about it the other day and I was like, do we meet Charlie? Who's the actor who plays Charlie? Is there an yeah, actor who plays Charlie? I don't Charlie? know that they're <laughs> going to have to Google it. Awesome. Please hold Charlie Weasley, IMDb. They pulled up John Hall Gleason, who is oh. Bill Weasley, so no. No, they <laughs> don't have a Charlie. Oh, that's funny. I know, Alex I was Crockford. About okay. Apparently he shows up in Prisoner of Azkaban in the photograph of the family holiday in Egypt. Right. Other than that, that's all he shows up in in the movies. That's right. Oh, wow. Charlie's the coolest sibling. That is unfortunate that it we is. don't actually meet him. And he's in this book too because he brings right. the he brings the dragons. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I have thoughts. Um, right. Something, <laughs> something completely missing from the movies and the rest of the series. And I feel like this might be what you're passionate about. Spew. Yep, sure is. Which is, of course, not spew. Anytime anyone calls it spew, Hermione gets angry. The Society yes. <laughs> of the Promotion of Elfish Welfare. <laughs> Take it away. Yes. Honestly, like, I think it's it's super important with Hermione's character arc that, like, she, in at first, when she's 11, she's a know-it-all. She tries really hard, and she's the top in her class. But as she gets older, the things that 
really are very important to her besides schoolwork are social justice efforts. And she, she cares so much that the wizarding world has this remnant of slavery and they think it's fine. And she's appalled by people who are like, well, it's the way it's always been. Mm-hmm. And it teaches us as readers, especially that just because it's the way it's always been, doesn't mean that it's right. right. Doesn't mean that it's okay. Even if as some of them say like, well, the house elves like serving. It's like, okay, but they, should be able to do it of their own will and Mm -hmm. you saying well they like doing it do they really or do they just tell you that like lots of issues with the fact that like we we miss this in Hermione's Mm -hmm. um character arc because because it is Harry Potter and the whatever she is a secondary character for for sake of like title and whatnot and so her passion um her like passion to help the people around her gets left out a little bit absolutely I like that I don't like it either. I agree. And I mean, obviously, this kind of, this is spurred by Winky and what happens with Winky because she's blamed for the dark mark and she's blamed for stealing Harry's wand, which later we discover was actually Barty Crouch Jr. hiding under an invisibility cloak under the Imperius mm-hmm. Curse, which is that's a backstory that I am super upset that we missed out on, but, um, and could have been easily added in, but anyways. And just, you know, the fact that, like, she's fired by him and Hermione is just so moved by that, I think is an incredible part of who Hermione is as a character. Because yeah. you're right, and it's a, it's a lot of those things that even nearly headless Nick, who has been around for 200 plus years, he says that's, that's, there's elves at Hogwarts. This is how it's always been. And Dobby's just weird because he wants to be free. Like, not all all house elves want to do this. And she's like, no, they don't. And so Winky having this total dilemma of, like, this is what I've been doing my whole life. This is what I've wanted to do my whole life. And I think Hermione kind of constantly pushing freedom on her is why she has this internal dilemma the whole time. And I think it's I think it's really great for Winky. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's interesting to see how not not every house elf is treated as badly as Dobby, mm-hmm. who very much wanted to be free. But we also see that, like, Winky was not treated terribly well by the Crouches. She was still, like you said, blamed for the curse. Wasn't she also... She was supposed to be Barty's junior's caretaker, mm-hmm. but yeah. then was still essentially abused by him i'm yes correct yeah, me yeah yeah no no you're correct because barty crouch senior had barty crouch jr under the imperious curse but she did have to make sure that he didn't leave the house or if he did he was under an invisibility cloak and that's why she sat so high up that's what made hermione the most angry right. because winky was afraid of heights yes and so it's just all of that and I mean, I think this is a very touchy subject and I, to an extent, would agree that there's some speculation that points towards Hermione possibly being a woman of color in the books because of her passion for social justice. I think anyone of any race or ethnicity or anything like that can be passionate about social justice and whatnot. Yeah, and I I think, I mean, in my opinion, like, J.K. Rowling meant it to be a white girl because that was how we always read it and she never corrected it then. But I do agree that when they cast Noma in the The Cursed Child Child play, that the justification for she always could have been is also true. Exactly. Um, I do see, like, there's a little bit of an interesting, like, I'm not saying that Hermione's perfect in this, though, too, because she is really pushy with Winky and she is very, like, a bit of the, like, white girl trying to take over yes. the minor- oppressed minority conversation. But also, like, I I like that we get not a carbon copy of Dobby because you do get to see that, like, service is very complex and that, like you said, Winky's turmoil is that she, she wants to serve, but does she want to serve because that's what she always has done? Does she know any other option with her life? Like wanting to yeah, I don't know it's it's really fascinating and I think mm-hmm. the the complexity of it is also so important for kids to read yeah. because when we are young especially when we're taught about things like the civil war we we just can have a very basic understanding of slavery was bad and to get into the nuances of what it actually means for individual human beings or house elves in this and 
people's different feelings about it and how to fight against it and fighting the notion of, like I said earlier, the it's always been this way, so it's fine. And wanting to bring about change in a world that doesn't even recognize something as a problem, it was just very fascinating. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Yeah, it's just one of those things. And and like even Hagrid, it you know, tells Hermione like, oh no, like, you know, he's this lovable oaf (laughs) that they call him. And he even says, oh, Hermione, that's, they always do that. And the Weasley twins don't support her at all. And they say that elves like to do it. It almost feels like gaslighting to an extent. And it's so, it's so interesting to see that and how Hermione sticks to her guns and keeps moving forward with it. And I really think that that could have contributed. I think that's a subplot that could have definitely stayed in, but they probably had to take it out for CGI reasons. (laughs) Yeah. But like you said, it could have still been contributing to our conversations today Mm -hmm. about similar issues that have come up in real life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Then we discussed this already with Winky and Dobby in the kitchen. She's very depressed. She doesn't know what to do. And she does mention that she doesn't trust Ludo, which I think is a moment where we, towards the end of the book, there is that discussion of a Death Eater at Hogwarts. And we're trying to figure out who it is. Obviously, our mind immediately goes to Professor Snape. But, you know, could they be talking about Lucius Malfoy, who we know is a Death Eater? Could they be talking about this person? Or is it Ludo Bagman? Right. And it's interesting. Who, like, Harry has clearly not really trusted throughout Mm -hmm. the whole book. Yeah. Yeah, and the whole time, Ludo Bagman is trying to help Harry win. Later, we find out it's because he has a gambling problem. And he bet everything on Harry. But in the moment, we're like, oh my god, he genuinely could have put Harry's name in the Goblet of Fire. So uh, Dobby actually gives Harry the gillyweed, which I was actually thinking about made more sense in the movie because in the book, Dobby gives Harry the gillyweed, but I actually think it makes more sense in the movie that Neville would do it. Yeah, I agree. I think it gave Neville more to do, and we we got to see him in a book that largely, like, he's not really very present. I really do like that Neville gave him the gillyweed. Kind of jumping back to Hermione, she did get the buck teeth from Malfoy in the book. So she was standing up for Harry. And it's just funny to see Hermione as a girl, like seeing her as a woman throughout the books because she's she's pissed off at the Bobatons that they aren't wearing enough clothing in this super cold climate. She thinks they're full mm-hmm. of themselves. She's mad that the boys don't see her as a girl. Not because Ron didn't ask her to the ball, but because the boys don't see her as a girl she's just another one of them and she's like no no I'm different (laughs) and this is where too like I did relate to her as well Mm -hmm. because um so in this book they're 14 I like I personally didn't even have a crush on a boy until I was 14 years old I was very much not very girly so girls especially at that age do have the tendency to pit themselves against each other and make a lot of comparisons of like they're really really beautiful, I don't like them kind of a thing. And so it's nice to see Hermione being a teenage girl. Yeah. And yet, in the same book, coming into her own and having the coolest guy fall for her and keeping that a secret, like, she's not the kind of person to tell everybody, like, oh my gosh, he asked me out to the Yule Ball. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm so proud of her for taking that affection and not rejecting it thinking that she wasn't allowed to have it kind of a thing yeah I agree with that I'm still mad though I don't know I think this is maybe later but um I'm mad that her dress was pink in the movie because blue is my favorite color and I get annoyed that blue is coded to be a boy color or in the movies they actually made it the Bobaton color so I just I liked that her dress was supposed to be blue and I wish it had been Yes, I agree. I think it would have been so beautiful and that just I, I think I think she calls it periwinkle in the book and it's just mm. so like the way you think about it, you're just like, Oh, she like looked stunning. No one recognized her because she right. you know, and it was like it's like a moment where she's just like I can kind of be Cinderella almost. Like it was definitely a Cinderella moment it, with the dress yeah. and all, with the blue dress. Like, I don't know. It always fascinates me that Moody isn't Moody throughout the entire movie, the entire film at Sparty Crouch. We kind of talked about this earlier. But in the book, something that I did not remember reading before was that Moody, who's really Barty Crouch Jr., performs the Imperious Curse on Harry. He actually performs it. Yeah. Yeah. 
And we see Harry, and I think this could have been really fascinating because we, we like see in Harry's head and there's a voice that's telling him, I don't want to do that. That even though there's this imperious curse that's making him do things, he has a stronger voice, which arguably is probably Voldemort. Like the piece yeah. of Voldemort in him that's saying, eh, I don't want to. And it's it's kind of crazy how that can almost be used as a defense against dark wizards and whatnot. Yeah. So, yeah. I kind of dive in here about basically the whole Veridiserum and that whole thing and how Barty Crouch Jr. was actually, he escaped from Azkaban through his dad, Barty Crouch Sr., which total plot twist for everyone because it was already a plot twist that he sent his son to jail, but then he sends his wife in instead. (sighs) Man, I I really, I really don't like it. I hate it. I mean, a mother's love for her child is admirable but like your child contributed to murder Mm -hmm. he contributed to neville's parents which you know arguably neville and harry are two different sides of the same coin they both had impacts harry's is obviously just more more prominent and publicized because he didn't have like maybe if harry had a grandmother things could have been different for him Side note, can we talk about how sad it is that Harry didn't have any grandparents because (gasps) James and Lily were 20 when they died? So, like, they've clearly been through a lot if their parents are all dead to the point where Harry has to go to aunt and uncle. Yeah, no, uh, totally agreed. Actually, I discussed it in the previous episode, and we can bring it in here too, that um, Sirius and Remus and... They're all yep. so much, they're significantly older than, like... This is actually, this is my one big, big hang-up with the movies. Yeah. Is that Alan Rickman is wonderful. Mm-hmm. I love him. But Sirius is 33 when we meet him. Remus is 33 when we meet him. Snape is 31 when we meet him. I've seen this meme online a lot <laughs> that's like, petition to have Adam Driver play a young Severus Snape. And I'm like, Adam Driver is already older than Snape was when we met him. Yes. Like, Exactly. Adam Driver's in his mid to late thirties, and Snape is thirty-one when we meet him. He yes. wasn't supposed. To, and I, I can forgive because again, I'm thirty-one. Like I can forgive somebody not being over their childhood bullying when it happened twelve years ago, as opposed to being sixty and not over their childhood bullying. You know, I'm. A, I can be a bit more. I can give Snape a bit more grace. Yeah. For his hangups when he's so young. Yeah. And we don't see that with the movies. I think that those actors did a wonderful job. But yes. we don't, like, same with Lupin. Lupin's my favorite character. I was in love with Lupin. It was super weird to have David Thewlis play play him. Because mm-hmm. I knew David Thewlis from uh, Dragonheart, where he's the bad yeah. guy. Sorry. And so to see him <laughs> as, like, the character that I had been in love with since I was 13 was very weird. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, like, that's the thing, too. And I think the movie kind of gets away with the fact that you know, he didn't have any grandparents because they're already significantly older than they're supposed to be. Right. Yeah, it is. It's incredibly sad. So I agree with you on that front. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so. Which also, side note, Barty Crouch then as well is actually as young. Like, he seems a lot younger than the rest of the Death Eaters. Yeah. And I think that that tracks because I don't know how old he's supposed to be, but like, he was played very young, which I think was right. Which I think, exactly. And I, I actually think that he could have, David Tennant could have been a good, I mean, again, Alan Rickman, incredible casting. I think he was perfect mm-hmm. for the role. But I think that he could have played a really good Snape as well. Yeah, or even a serious. But in terms of that, I think you're right. It does track in terms of Barty Crouch Jr. He is very young when that happens. Like he's barely a schoolboy when he goes to Azkaban. Mm-hmm. So it makes, it does make a lot of sense. He's the young fanatic that we're afraid of in the real world. Mm -hmm. And Snape is as well. Snape was a Death Eater at the age of, what, 18, 17? Those are the people I'm I'm much more afraid of them than I am of the older generation. Absolutely, because they are part of the future. Super small side note that I should have put up earlier. The other schools are boys and girls. Yes. Yeah. Which I, (laughs) I mean, we even propagate it. I understand why the movie, for the sake of... Like, again, coding so that we can have an easier memory of who is who, that they made 
the Beau Baton school, the girl school, and the Durmstrang school, the boy school. But like, no, it doesn't make sense that the only wizarding school in France would be only for girls. Exactly. Especially, <laughs> especially, and I think it might be, I don't remember what book it's mentioned in. I think it's mentioned in one of the books that Nicholas Flamel is a famous Beau Baton graduate. So, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> but, uh, but it makes sense. The Durmstrang's blood red robes that mm-hmm. we, we do not see. We see they're just very brown manly tunics yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, with their staffs. Uh, we know those boys. <laughs> we know those boys. We know those girls. It's a lucky life we lead. So one of the other confusing oh, yeah. uh, things that people get confused about though too with this is that the way the um, Bobatons are introduced in the movie, we know from the book that Fleur is part Vila. Yes. That does not mean every single student at Bobaton, every single French girl wizard is part Vila. <laughs> And there is this, like, misconception that the Bobatons are all part Vila and they are not. (laughs) (sighs) Yes, exactly. Um, But, yeah, no, I agree. And we don't actually find out about Fleur being part Vila until the weighing of the wands, which doesn't happen in the film. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Because then her wand has... um, grandma's hair exactly yes 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 um because it's funny ron and harry are feuding at this point during the weighing of the wands because harry didn't tell ron about putting Mm -hmm. his name in the Mm -hmm. goblet when harry's like i didn't put my name in the goblet and so fleur they when they put her wand up she has a vila hair in there and so harry has this like mental note and he's like i need to tell ron when we're not fighting (laughs) that she is part vila and it makes sense (laughs) and then it's just really interesting how It's small little things that I think they could have added, but the judges' marks and how they're actually given points and totals, whereas I don't think that's explained as well in the movie. And it's just like, oh, this person won, this person won. Eh, She didn't finish. And I think they kind of get into it in the second task, but it's not super in-depth. But it's cool to hear how the other champions did on a number scale and to see how much of a cheater Igor Kargaroff is. Yep. <laughs> I thought the comparison of the siren song from the egg, from the golden egg, as the ghost orchestra at the death day party was <laughs> chef's kiss. Nice. I loved it. I also loved that there was a chieftainess, a mer-chieftainess mm-hmm. uh, for the mermaids. It's a woman. We love a matriarchy. Yeah, We're here for it. <laughs> and she tells everyone what Harry did. It's not like they can't, they're not watching. They can't, they're not underwater. So the whole hour that they're under, everyone's just like, so how's your day going? You know, like, <laughs> they're not looking at anything. You're not watching the dragons. And that happens with the maze too. Like they yeah. can't see into the maze. Yeah. They're just so, like, all right, it, it, it all depends on what people tell us. Yeah. And so it's kind of funny that like, as in the film and in the book, we get to see that from Harry's perspective. But, um, but yeah, it was cool that she stood up for Harry and said, Harry deserves a better score because he tried to save everyone. I think it's really cute. It's a it's a Victor plot point that wasn't necessary, but I think it just shows how in love with Hermione he was when he goes up to Harry and he's concerned that Herman Ninny, <laughs> that he's concerned about them being a couple. And Harry's like, no, no. <laughs> she's she's like a sister. You're like, no, no, no. <laughs> she's all yours, dude. And then like Ludo walks up and they go through the maze, which I thought was kind of cool. They had that kind of introduction to the maze. Obviously, it doesn't make sense to do it in the movie, but I thought that was kind of right. cool and um, how you would get full marks for arriving to the Triwizard Cup first. Kind of like Mm -hmm. the snitch. You don't automatically win because you caught it, but it gives you a lot of points. So normally if you do get it, you win. I loved that there was a family moment right before the third task. I think it makes Cedric's demise um, a little bit more heartfelt. But we're we're getting there. We're getting there. But I love that the Weasleys were there for Harry. They were his family. And I think it's later on in the book that Mrs. Weasley, or later on in book five, I believe it is, that Mrs. Weasley full-blown says, like, Harry's like a son to me. And it's just that moment that Harry's never had or experienced, which I think is really sweet and something we don't really see in the movies. And Fleur seeing Bill for the first time. Which yeah. <laughs> I'm a simp for romance. So. <laughs> How old are Bill and Charlie supposed to be? So like, I let's think see, fourteen. and the twins are... Uh, the twins 15. are 15. No, they're 14 in this book. So then the twins are 16 because they're yeah, like yeah, yeah. just 16. underage. Percy just left school, so he's 18, I guess. 18. And then a Charlie... 
had left school before they even got there. So he's so he's at least eighteen or nineteen. At least eighteen when, or nineteen when in the they first start. Book. So mm-hmm. then, so he's at least in his twenties, and then yeah. So it's kind little. of a big age difference between Bill and Fleur, is what yeah. I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they're adorable. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, good for her. <laughs> good for both of them. <laughs> but. Yeah, and then, okay, so this was something I was kind of disappointed in with the movie, the movie's interpretation of the maze. I feel like the maze was just a bunch of, like, running back and forth, and here's this, and here's that, and Fleur's gonna be taken up by these plants, and just all this stuff, and in the book, there's a bogger that presents as a Dementor to Harry. There's, obviously, a blast-ended Scroot, which they talk about the entire book with Hagrid. That's a subplot with Hagrid. That's the thing that the books, or the films, I don't think really do well, is they don't really include the creatures as much as they could. Yeah. I know Marissa has a lot to say on that, too. Yeah. <laughs> Marissa's one she of our co-workers. She knows so much. It's so impressive. She does. It's incredible. I I, I really want to have some of them. I need to study up on all of these creatures. <laughs> the Sphinx with the riddle, I thought was so cool. Like, what is with the films getting rid of all the riddles? In the first book, they got rid of the potions riddle. Yes. Uh, I hated that. Because <sighs> Hermione figuring out that riddle was one of the coolest things for my little, like, nerd bookish smart girl heart and Mm -hmm. it was really upsetting that she didn't get to do that yep Yes, and then, like, we have a moment where we're like, okay, Harry isn't as duncy as we think he is sometimes. He's not as angsty. Like, he he got Spider all by himself. So I thought that was, I thought that was really cool. And we never see Fleur in the maze, but we do witness Crumb performing the Cruciatus Curse on Cedric. Yeah. Which, you know. Which I thought was, um, wasn't Crumb mm-hmm. under some sort of influence? Yeah, so he was under the fault. Imperious Curse. So no, it wasn't. Perfect. Yeah, it just shows that Karkaroff is a nasty cheat and uh, should have gone to Azkaban. So Rita Skeeter, I think she's pretty accurate to how she is portrayed in the books and the movies, but it is totally left out that she is an unregistered Animagus. Yes. Yeah, just like the Marauders. She is also an unregistered Animagus, and it's another cool Hermione plot point that yes. she figures it out. And, you know, Hermione is awesome. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Like, when I was rereading the book, I was just like, I remember there's something about Rita. I just, like, that isn't in the films. And I'm, it's easier to remember the films. And so, like, in my mind, I was like, there's something about Rita, and I don't remember what it is. And, like, up until right before Hermione pulls out the jar, I was like, what is it about Rita? Like, I think she's an Animagus. And then I was like, I don't remember. But it, is she unregistered, too? Like, I just had all these things, and I was, like, trying to remember it. And it was so cool that you know, Hermione figure that out. I love that by forgetting it, you got to go through that reveal again. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. Really fun too. <laughs> I love, I mean, that's kind of like why I wanted to do this podcast because I was just like, I have such a deep love for Harry Potter, but I've forgotten most of it. It's just fun to have all these reveals happening again, like uh, yeah. just all sorts of things. I mean, you know, Hagrid has a moment in a negative spotlight because of Rita Skeeter, I mean, Hermione has a moment where she's toying with all these champion boys' hearts. Like, what? (laughs) And, like, (laughs) and and Mrs. Weasley goes for it. Mrs. Weasley, like, for a split second, kind of, I mean, she's addicted to Witch Weekly, and, I mean, you know, we can't, the characters have their flaws, and that's what makes them so, so incredibly human, and you you feel like you know them. So, I do appreciate that about this. So. Dumbledore trying to convince Cornelius of what happened and asking and saying we should ask the giants for help and the giants having such a negative connotation in the wizarding world. We see that with the article Rita publishes about Hagrid being half giant and people are like, oh, we don't want him. You know, it's a discrimination thing and it's obviously giants are a different, I guess, species or just the discrimination that happens because of it I mean we already knew there was discrimination in the magical world but it's just it's just sad to see that and Cornelius openly refusing to get help from the giants because the giants were on you know whose side last and Dumbledore's like they are literally they're Switzerland like we can convince them to be on our side we should do it now because Voldemort's back we got to get this going if we don't ask then we're going to be in more trouble. Exactly. Yeah. And then, uh, Cornelius just becomes, I liked Cornelius. And I remember as a kid liking Cornelius until this point when 
Cornelius very obviously is being told by Dumbledore and Harry, Voldemort is back. And he, in the book, has the audacity to bring a Dementor into Hogwarts after putting them there for the entire third book and seeing the pain it caused all of the kids, all of the teachers and everything, bringing it in and then performing the kiss on Crouch Jr. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's just so frustrating because it's like that's how we would have known that Voldemort is back. There's just so many things and like his alibi. To, oh, it's just, I'm very passionate about that. It's, it's it's super upsetting because again, as a young reader, realizing that the government isn't exactly always your good guys. Um, Yikes. And they're not always there to support you and help you and listen to you or, you know, it's interesting. I sound like a very anti-government person, but no, like realizing that, and it's not that Cornelius is one of his heroes, but like realizing that the people who matter, who needed this information instead covered it up mm-hmm. rather than listening to the child and listening to Dumbledore. Yeah. So, And it leads to worse further consequences by trying to pretend it isn't happening. So Cedric, I know you're very passionate about Cedric, so I'm going to turn that over to you. So here's my thing. This is the reason that this book is my favorite. So again, I'm a Hufflepuff. Cedric was a character that I very quickly fell in love with. And when we went to the graveyard, so the reason this book is my favorite is because I I read so many books growing up. um, And when I finally did commit to reading Harry Potter because my brother wanted me to, I still, I loved it, but it was still just like another story to me. And this book is when that changed because when we got to the graveyard and the killing curse was performed on Cedric... I didn't believe it. I didn't think that it was actually the case. So the entirety of the graveyard scene was happening. And I kept expecting Cedric to show up and save Harry and they would get out of there together. And then when the when Cedric's ghost came out of the wand, when um, Harry and Voldemort's wands were battling and he said to take his body back to his dad, I just started to cry. And I'm even kind of a little emotional yeah. talking about it now because it really struck me that that it was real that this character who was lovely and such a good person and there was no reason for him to die but because he was a good person with harry and had decided to end the task together because they had helped each other he was killed and that line kill the spare is so offensive to how good of a person he was and how much he mattered um so yeah when he died i was really broken up about it and this it this is when the books changed for me and became more than just another one of the series that I liked reading. That's when they became really important to me because of how strongly I felt about Cedric in this final part of the book. Thank (laughs) you for sharing that with us. I mean, oh my gosh, I'm getting a little teary. eyed just like (laughs) listening to you say this. I mean, it's, yeah, I, you know, we grow to love these characters and we're getting into the parts of the books that are getting really real characters are going to start dying left and right and i i think i had the moment you're talking about with cedric with sirius in book five yeah like i i was convinced that he was not dead i was convinced he was going to come back somehow he was harry's only father figure i mean other than arthur of course but it was just that moment that was like how ah it just you know there's like no way to put it there's no there's no word to like put to it behind this feeling that's just so and deaths had happened in the story before this point Mm -hmm. like you said with Bertha Jorkins and um the caretaker whose name I can't remember right now but this was such a like I said he was such an unimportant character in a lot of ways but he was only 16 years old and then with Sirius as well Sirius had such a hard life his entire adulthood has been spent in prison so of course he's as rash and a mess when he's 33 and gets out of prison and like you said like that was harry's connection to his childhood so to have again such an important character that he loses it just i think it really taught a lot of us as young readers that war it doesn't care if you're a good person it doesn't Mm -hmm. care if you matter to somebody like yeah it's yeah, that's beautiful. That's a that's a really beautiful way of putting it and wording it. That's I'm so happy to have you on here because I feel like you word your opinions and your thoughts very well. And so, um, <laughs> so like it's just been so great. And like I don't know, I I just love it so much and having this conversation with you and everything. So, yay! Um, <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, but yeah. Oh my gosh. 
Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. But do you have a favorite scene that's either in the book or in the movie or in both? Is there something that has always stuck with you? Um, not particularly, no. Um, I, I feel really strongly about the story as a whole, but I can't honestly say that, like, there's one scene that's more my favorite than another. Yep. Um, I love Hermione's character arc in this book. She goes through a lot, and it's very much in the background as Harry deals with his trying to not die in every task and <laughs> you know but I I really I just I love Hermione's arc in this a lot yeah I agree I I think her arc is really beautifully done it's very it's written very well to an extent that anyone could pick up the book and relate to Hermione in some way I think yeah I'd have to say that my favorite is the Yule Ball because like I said I'm I'm a fan of a you know a good party which we've been in lack of for obvious reasons. And task number two, I love mermaids. I always have. And it was cool to see sirens in like a, they're, they're in a negative, you know, connotation in pirate and sailor folklore. But, you know, growing up with Disney, you think of mermaids and you're like, oh my God, Ariel, oh my gosh, you know, all this stuff. And, (laughs) And it's, it's kind of fun to see how a different interpretation of mermaid. Right. So I liked that. And in the book, the confession from Barty Crouch. I think that Brady Crouch Jr., I think. I do remember reading that scene multiple times just to be like, I'm sorry, what? Yeah. What are you saying? Yeah, because it's a lot of like going back and being like, okay, so wait, he was in hiding at the house and Winky was taking care of him and he was at the trip at the Quidditch World Cup. But like, oh my God, why was he at the Quidditch World Cup? Like, how did he get there? How did he stay there? What happened? <laughs> a lot of it for me too was like, wait, so when Moody said this, that was not Moody. Wait, when Moody said this, that was also not Moody. <laughs> like the yeah. whole time. And like the whole like showing him, showing them the three unforgivable curses thank you i was like the three deadly sins i was like that's not right the three unforgivable curses like that is very much something that i would have assumed moody would do you know based on the way he's been written but also he he hasn't been himself the whole time just such a cool fascinating and i love backstory i'm a big fan of backstory so we have some trivia what man's statue is next to the special lavatory entrance to the prefect's bathroom (laughs) you guys did not see the face that crystal just made to me she was like uh jessica you're insane why would i know this i i know one statue and it is the one-eyed witch which is at the head of a secret passageway that fred and george know about that is true i think that might be it (laughs) i also don't know no idea i also have no idea about any of the statues i think someone we work with though knows all of the statues like i would not be surprised yeah and um and so she's probably like listening like come on crystal you got this (laughs) so crystal hi the question of the podcast book or blockbuster which do you prefer definitely the book yeah (laughs) i think the movies do a really good job overall of conveying the story as best as they can but i need that book yep yeah you do need the book especially in this book there's so many underlying things like we don't know in the film how barty crouch jr relates to any of this well i mean i guess we have an idea of it but we don't know how he escaped why he escaped we don't know how he got to the quidditch world cup that was so random like did he start the uprising of the death eaters you know yeah he just shows up looks right at harry and harry's like what the heck and (laughs) and he has a wand so i don't know there's just a lot yeah well a very special thank you to crystal for joining me today thank you so much Absolutely. Oh my goodness. And of course, thank you to Kiss Ass Facts for (laughs) some fun movie facts, as well as Jack Goldstein, Frankie Taylor, and Holger Webling for their book, Harry Potter and the Ultimate Book, for some amazing fun facts. And I'd also like to thank JK Rowling for creating this world and only that. I like to refer to her as she who must not be named. Yes. Oh my goodness. I have a lot of feelings on that, but thank you listeners. Talk to you soon and happy reading, watching, and listening.